Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. I'm going to join a new conversations right at the beginning, and it's called this. It's called Skeptical. Skeptical. You know, if anything describes how the world and people approach issues of faith today, it's probably this word skeptical, and probably for a good reason. But I just want to consider what skeptical means, and maybe it helps us think about this here this weekend. Here's what skeptical means. Skeptical means to not be easily convinced, having doubts or reservations. Maybe you think when you hear that explanation, that describes you in all sorts of areas of life. You're not easily convinced. It takes some some explanation. It takes some pulling over, and, and maybe you're sitting there saying, you know, I, I wish my spouse was maybe a little bit more skeptical about things coming their way so they weren't always buying things. They weren't easily convinced about things. But the truth is, if there's a mode of operation for our culture around the issue of religion and faith, it's being skeptical, isn't it? I imagine that if I got on a time machine and I went back 75 years and I pulled someone off the street and I asked them about what they thought about God or the Bible or faith or Jesus, you would find most people would accept those things to be true. Sociologists call that a a, a period of time called Christendom where there's a Judeo-Christian world ethic, worldview, most people would have it. Fast forward to today, you'd be hard pressed to pull someone off the street and see that they accept the God of the Bible and Jesus of the Bible. In fact, they would probably be a little doubtful, a little hesitant, not easily convinced. And I think that's where most folks are at. And if that's you, I just want to say that I don't blame you because I think if I experienced what you've experienced and heard what you've heard, I would be skeptical as well. I'd feel the same way. So if you're, if you're someone who just find yourself saying, you know, I'm not saying it's it's wrong, I just, I'm not sure. I'm doubtful, I, I have some reservations about it. I, I'm not easily convinced, and this is a series that's made just for you. And my hope is for anyone having an honest bout of questions before God about is this true, is it reliable, that you would embrace those questions, because I believe the Christian faith actually holds up to that kind of scrutiny. But even more so, I would say that this is a message series that's for those who would call themselves Christians because here's what I know. There's some hard questions we begin to ask ourselves, even when we say we believe it's true. When time gets hard, when things get rough, we start to ask ourselves some legitimate questions. This is is a question I think all of us should ask ourselves, and it's this question, why am I a Christian? Why is this true? I was even talking with a friend today, and and we were asking this question, am I a Christian because, well, my mom and my dad were, or I grew up in this state, in this area, and if had I grown up somewhere else, I probably would think differently. Why, Why are you a Christian? You ever asked yourself that? You ever stopped to examine what you believe, and why you believe it. Do you believe it just because, you know what, at the end of the day, I don't feel comfortable marking anything off on the census, and so I don't want to be an atheist, and I don't want to be a Buddhist, and I'm not going to be Muslim, so I'll just check off the Christian column. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why 
am I a Christian? And is there more to my faith than simply the culture that I was raised in? Maybe you find yourself asking that question from time to time, but here's what I know. If you're a Christian, if you profess to be a Christ follower, at some point in your life, you're gonna encounter someone who starts asking those hard questions of you. You start to encounter someone that as they look at how you live and how you believe, they would say, why do you believe that? And that's good for you, but for me, I'm not so easily convinced. I'm doubtful, I have reservations. In a world full of skepticism, it's hardly a surprise that a question like that should come our way, but here's the first challenge that many people encounter when you ask that question, why am I a Christian? Why do you believe it's true? And many times, those who would say they profess it, here's what they do, they shrug their shoulders, shrug their shoulders, and they say, I just believe it. I just, I just believe it. And they quote George Michael and they say this, you just gotta have faith. You just gotta have faith. And here's what that can sometimes be interpreted as saying. It can come across as being unrational and unreasonable and unexamined and not investigated. It's this feeling like, well, I'm just gonna believe it's true because of an internal feeling I have on the inside. And there are some people that have that feeling and some people that don't have that feeling. And I have that feeling, so therefore, it's true because I feel it. And that's how we understand sometimes faith. We see it as non-rational belief, something that's not based on evidence. At best, it's based on wishful thinking. But here's the thing. that The early Christians didn't understand the word faith that way. In fact, the word faith comes from the Latin word fides, or what we, what we get the word fidelity from. It's closer aligned to the English word for trust. Trust is something that is worthy of trust. For them, they didn't believe it because they were turning a blind eye to rational thought or reason, but it's actually their reason that made them say that this thing that they believe is actually trustworthy. They're able to put their weight down on it and it can bear their weight. And trust, as we know, is not something that we just assume. We base our trust on evidence, don't we? About a week ago, I was in here practice, uh, prepping for my message and I got an email, and I, I shared this with the church body yesterday. I got, I got this message, hey, does anyone want a 15-passenger van for a ministry? It's from our network of churches. And I emailed them back as quickly as I could, and I'm like, dibs, it's ours, we want it. And so we went and picked up this 2001 Dodge Ram 3500 15-passenger van. Awesome, it's pulling hard. The youth group's so excited to take it on trips. But you know what? There's a process that we have to go to in order to call that van ours. I took it to a Maryland State inspection place. Like in Maryland, you have to get an inspection of the car. Because I'm not just going to say, well, I have a good feeling. I just believe it's true inside of me, and I'm just going to put my teenage children on this vehicle and ship them off when I don't know. I don't know if the frame is rusted out. I don't know if the tires are rotten. 
I don't know what shape this is in, and so I don't just go with the feeling, what do I do? I take it to a mechanic who kicks the tires, who lifted it up, looked underneath of it, and said, hey, this is the integrity, this is the trustworthiness of this van. And we do that in all sorts of things in life. We don't just say, I have this feeling inside of me that it's trustworthy. No, when we have an engineer who's building a bridge, we wanna know that it's actually being inspected. And if my wife goes to get brain surgery, I'm not gonna say, you know that surgeon? I have a good feeling about them. (laughs) I feel good on the inside. No, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say, I want to know that they have a solid education, that they are board certified, that they did a residency under the best brain surgeons that exist. Not so that I have just like this internal feeling, but so that I know that they are trustworthy. How much more important should it be that our faith, that we bear the weight of our souls, is trustworthy? And hear me, hear me. I believe the Christian faith is something that can bear our weight, but it is not enough for a believer just to say, I think we have to apply reason and investigate it. And here's the thing. The New Testament, it invites you to kick the tires and investigate it. In fact, we'll find that the New Testament is investigable. I say the word is investigatable, but evidently it's properly described as investigable, that we can actually ask hard questions. But besides, if, if, if you find yourself skeptical at all, what I want you to know is you're actually in great company because Jesus's actual friends were skeptical about him. They didn't believe what he said about himself. They were walking and talking examples of what skeptical really looks like. But what we're gonna see is what they observed and when they kicked the tires and when they saw what Jesus was, despite their own skepticism, They challenged that and they accepted something to be true that changed the course of their lives and their families' lives and the culture around them and historians and sociologists would all agree that it changed the course of human history because they ultimately, even though they were skeptical, even though they were slow to assume that it was true, even though they were doubtful and they had reservations, said, I can't explain this any other way and they became completely convinced. A few months ago, I was talking with someone who was struggling with their own skepticism about Jesus, and can, can I put my weight on this, and how do I know it's true? How do I know it's true? Not just why am I a Christian, but how, they're even exploring faith. How do I know this is true, and how do I know it wasn't just made up? You say, well, I know it's true because the Bible said so, but why am I supposed to believe in that? Just the Bible said so? How do I know that those people didn't get together and have a little powwow and say, hey, you write that part, I'll write this part. You know what we can do? If we just write it in such a way, we'll be able to like control the course of history and we can create and manipulate our own little group, you know, like create our own little religion. How do I know that it wasn't all just made up? Can I tell you that I actually think that that's a great question, and that's actually where we're going to start this series this weekend, and for the next seven weeks, we're going to spend time looking at different aspects of being skeptical, but today we're going to start with this core question. Can I trust the Gospels? Can I trust the Gospels? These Gospels that we would call the four books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, commonly known as the Gospels, but are they just 
made up. Now, what I want to do to just start, and then we're going to open God's word together. We're going to open these orange books underneath your seats. But to start, here's what I want to do. There's something called a textual criticism. And there's scholars that have written extensively about can I trust the authenticity of the Gospels and all that they are. In my research, I have a stack of books about this big today, this week, and I was looking through all those. And I wanted to present to you off the front two textual criticisms that I think cast a compelling reason for why we would accept the Gospels as being reliable. And then we'll hop into the text here today. And ultimately, the question would simply be for you to step back and then to incorporate this into your processing to figure out what you believe to be true. The first, the first compelling reason is something that they call the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment. Author Mark Clark, the author of The Problem of Jesus, it's a great book. It says this, he says this, if the early church was writing a mythology, in other words, if they were making it up for their own purposes of Jesus, then it wouldn't make sense for them to include material that would weaken its positions or embarrass them. So in other words, if I'm going to write something, I'm going to make it up, I'm going to write in such a way that it's going to make me look good. So um, it was probably years ago, uh, but my wife left her Facebook open on her laptop. Okay, and, and I saw that, and I thought, this is going to be fun. So I went over, and I, and I went over to her profile, and I said, I love my husband. He's the best. He's always thoughtful. He lets me sleep in. He brings me hot tea in the morning. He's the most amazing husband in the whole wide world. Send. And then, sure enough, someone gets on there, hey, Scott got into your Facebook, didn't he, right? <laughs> I wouldn't get on there, and I wouldn't say, my husband's a real pain. He always leaves the toilet seat up, never brings me anything nice, leaves his junk all over. I wouldn't say that, because that would embarrass me, right? What we see, though, in the Gospels are things that would have embarrassed Jesus and the people who wrote the Gospels. Here's what I mean when I say it would embarrass Jesus. Well, for example, when Jesus was baptized by John, John was baptizing for the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus is not supposed to have any sins, so why was he being baptized? That doesn't build their case. How about this one? Jesus not knowing the exact day or the hour or the end of all things, despite claiming to know everything, out of Mark 1, or excuse me, 13. And one of the main categories used to describe Jesus, the author and perfecter of the Christian faith in Jesus' contemporary time was that of a magician or a sorcerer. And that would have been hugely embarrassing to a Jewish audience. And then there's the embarrassment of the authors themselves. If you were making up stories, you know, you would attribute it to the most scholarly, the most noble, the most reputable authors that you could find. Technically, the early church, man, they had the freedom to say whoever they wanted to wrote these gospels if they were really trying to manipulate things. So if they were falsely attributing them, he, they couldn't have chosen a less compelling group. Check this out. Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he was a tax collector, the most despised profession that existed. So if you're making something up, you would not choose a tax collector. It would be counterproductive. Except that Matthew actually wrote it. And if uh, and then there, was, then there was Mark. John Mark was his name. Now, he was transcribing what Peter 
the fishermen gave him to say. And there was Luke. None of them, neither of them are among the 12 apostles. Why would they do that? And if you're making something up, listen, you wouldn't include things in the narrative that made you look like an idiot. Peter, Peter was supposedly the most influential, critical pillars of the early church, and yet he denied Jesus three times. Not only did he do that, but when the little girl asked him about it, he cussed her out. Why would you include that about yourself? You wouldn't do that. That's a terrible way to instill confidence. Consistently, the disciples, who they're authors, they were always portrayed as ignorant, faithless, disloyal, lacking understanding. And if you're trying to create a religion based off of its leadership, that is a fundamental flaw and a terrible way to start. And then, when it comes to one of the most critical parts of the story, these people who ran to the tomb of Jesus where he was evidently resurrected, the first witnesses to that were women. And in first century Israel, women were considered to be the least reliable witnesses you could find. So why would they pick them? The only reason you would do that is because it actually happened that way. And then this author, Mark Clark, he, he says actually the most compelling thing is not what they say, but what they don't say. So in the early first century, there was arguments that broke out Someone's phone got left there. <laughs> we should just pick it up in church and say, hey, how you doing? It's inside <laughs> It's all right. Someone's going to their purse. It's all right. It's no problem. It's no problem. Uh, but Mark Clark says this. He says some of the most compelling things are actually what's not included in the New Testament. So in the first century, there's lots of arguments about uh, what kind of food you could or couldn't eat that broke out in the church, like serious divisions. And there was arguments about should Gentiles get circumcised or not, right? Uh, and there were serious arguments. Now, if, if they were just making it up, it would have been so convenient and easy for them to say, let's just change what Jesus said to fit my needs in such and such a way. So he says that's very, very compelling. That's the criterion of embarrassment. To me, that's very compelling. The second criterion is the criterion of suffering. If you are making up a story, if you are making up a story, to me, if it was a myth, the moment the heat was turned on, you would let it go altogether. You know the level of conviction someone has by the price they're willing to pay for that conviction. And when you look at these early apostles, they were so convinced that what they had experienced was true, their narrative that was, had integrity, they were unwilling to recant on the whole thing. And so listen to, this, listen to this explanation. Go ahead and throw it back up there, Eric. This is what happened to these disciples. Peter was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Philip was crucified. Bartholomew was flayed to death. James the Greater was beheaded. Matthew was killed with a sword. Matthias was stoned, not like, not like with drugs, but different kind of stoned. Uh, Thomas stabbed with spears. John died after exile. Luke was hanged. James the Just was thrown and beaten. Mark was dragged to death by a horse, and Paul was beheaded. And these people were told, look, all you have to do is recant. Just tell them you made it up and you'll, you won't have to die. And every single one of them were not willing to recant. Because, because, listen, it wasn't because the Bible said so. Do you know why? Because the Bible wasn't written as we, the Bible, how we have it, did not exist until several hundred years later. They didn't read it. They experienced it, and they saw it, and they believed that it was true. 
So those are two reasons, but as we pivot here, I want us to open the book of Luke, so turn open in those orange books to page 697, or in your own Bible to the account in Luke, but what we need to know whenever we approach scripture of any sort, any kind of book really, is you have to know first and foremost, what kind of book am I reading? What kind of literature am I reading? So if I pick up, say, a pamphlet from Ikea that tells you how to put together a, a, a cabinet, Number one, there's never any words in it. It's always just pictures, right? But that's going to read entirely different than, say, a book of like love poems or a scientific treatise or, or something about drug warnings. They're going to read completely differently. And so we need to know, first and foremost, what are we actually reading? Because we approach scripture in error when we try to hold a different genre up to it. This is not meant to be a book on science. It's a historical account. First and foremost, these were accounts. Let's look in Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Luke. Who was Luke? Luke was a doctor. We know uh, later he was only mentioned like two or three times in the New Testament. He was identified as a doctor, a person who would have been very meticulous, very detail-oriented. He was a historian. And Luke tells us this in Luke chapter 1. He says this. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account. In other words, they've, they've documented it. These things that have been Fulfilled. In other words, these things that have happened amongst us. So we're not reading a journal of science. That's not what we're reading. We're reading eyewitness accounts. The closest thing we have to this would be like a historical biography. Right? For historical biographies right now can be like, first this, then this, then this, then this, this. It's different from that in that at that point in time, they were writing to a particular kind of audience. So for example, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. So he would have told the narrative of what he experienced with the view of convincing people that were Jews about Jesus being the Messiah. Luke was writing more to a Greek thought, as was John, so it's going to have a different feel, a different flavor. It doesn't make them disagreeing. It means that their audience was different. It was a historical account. And he says, many have undertaken to draw up this account. Just as they were handed down to us, by those who were first eyewitnesses of the servants of the word. Something happened that caused them to say, hey, we've got to document this. It's, it's interesting that Luke says this. He says, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one that's trying to write this down and capture this. Other people are doing this as well. And this is so fascinating because in the early first century, there weren't more, multiple accounts of much of anything. Not even the most well-known events and people had more than maybe one thing written about them. It just didn't happen because, well, most people were illiterate. Writing was expensive. Right? It, was, it was challenging to do. And back then, you know, it's not like it is today, when if Will Smith smacks somebody, you know, there's like 17 camera angles and everyone's tweeting about it and I heard about this. That didn't happen. They were largely illiterate. It was difficult. It was expensive. So there wasn't just one account. There were multiple accounts. And when that happens, that was always true of a significant character in history. And we have four narrative accounts by first-hand witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that's not all. Those people believe that Jesus was who Jesus was. But there are at least five historians who never believed Jesus was who he said he was that wrote about him. The most popular was a guy named Josephus who even, who even wrote, hey, he died and was raised again, and his disciples loved him and kept following him after that. It was in history. 
Listen, the most well-known person in the world during the first century was a guy named Tiberius. He was the Roman emperor. Right? He was the most popular, the most influential. And even though Jesus was a carpenter from nowhere, Galilee, he was in the periphery of the Roman Empire, we have more material about Jesus than we do about Tiberius. For that reason, no scholar worth his, grain of, or his or her grain of salt debates whether or not Jesus actually exists. And I say this because during this time, every year, I'm telling you, I went, I went through the checkout at Weiss, and there they had Time Magazine with Jesus and Time Magazine with cats. I don't know why, but they had them both right next to each other. And they'll say, is Jesus real? Did Jesus actually exist? No scholar worth their grain of salt actually debates that because we have more historical evidence for him than anyone in antiquity. And no one debates that Tiberius was true. So he says this, Luke says, with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated it. It is investigable. Of everything from the beginning, I went back to the beginning of his life, and I, and I asked those people, I asked, I sat down with Mary, and I said, what was it like? What did you experience? And then what? And then what? Then what did he do? He says, I too, along with a lot of people, decided to write an orderly account for you, the most excellent Theophilus. <laughs> Theophilus, who is this Theophilus guy? Well, we believe that he is some sort of Christ follower who had some means. He was able to, to kind of help Luke make this take place. So Luke is reporting back to him. So he would have been influential. But we also know that he was ugly because his parents took one look at him and said, you are a Theophilus-looking baby I've ever seen. And after that, it just kind of stuck, right? So Luke says, look, I'm going to take the time to put together it so you could use that name for a baby name for someone who's looking next, Theophilus. But listen, what I'm going to say next is really, really, really important. That when Luke sat down to take an orderly account, Luke was not writing the Bible. Luke never had that in his mind that someday, 2,000 years later, it would be a part of a collection of writings. He never thought that was the case. He was just creating an orderly account of, of Jesus' life based on eyewitnesses. And Luke tells us when the story began, he tells us how the story even began and how they ended up believing that it was true. And the story of Jesus and the gospel began when these people who were skeptical, they didn't believe what Jesus said about himself was true. When they experienced something that completely changed their opinion on it, let me show you where that happened. Turn to Luke 23. As you're turning there, Luke 23, the, there's two men, Joe and Nick, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They go to Jesus after he had been killed. And so Luke talks about Joseph and, and Nicodemus. Now, these were two men that Joseph of Arimathea was a, a part of the Jewish high council, and Nicodemus was a well-known law teacher at the time. Now, you would, never, you would never stop to name someone like that because these were well-known people. You could go and you could say, Nicodemus, I'm going to verify that what you said is true. If you're trying to make up a myth, this is how it normally starts. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, because you can't verify that. 
But he said, there's two people here. You can go check into this. This is true. This is what it says has happened. He says, I've investigated, and this is what happened. After Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea, he brings together his servants in Luke 23, verse 53. He says, then he took it down, the body of Christ, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one which no one had yet been laid. And he gives this kind of detail because he's a doctor. He's detail-oriented, and he's writing this orderly account, and he goes on to say this in verse 55. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it, and they went home, and what did they do? They prepared spices and perfumes. Now, why would they have done that? Because nobody expected anything other than Jesus would stay dead. Jesus had made some bold claims. I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life. They didn't believe him. So they said, we're going to embalm him. You don't embalm somebody you think is going to come back. They expected him to stay dead. Now, this is so important. This is so important. In this moment, listen, there were no Christians. In this moment, there was no the Bible. There were no Jesus followers. There were no church. There were just these broken-hearted women, these broken-hearted disciples who had been disillusioned, who had been scattered, who were in hiding, And there was Rome, the eternal city, the the place of the the lowercase g gods, and they they had won. And the the temple with the Jewish uh, high council, they had won again. Between Rome and the temple, the Jesus movement had been crushed out of existence. Now listen, if it had ended right there, there would have been no the Bible. There would have been no the church. There would be no gospel. There would be no Christians. And there would be no account by Luke about the details of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is so, so important. But listen, Luke documented what happened next, that it didn't end there. It didn't end on a Roman cross, because to the surprise of everybody, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, including the people that knew him the best, was despite their skepticism, and they were not easily convinced. They had doubts. They had reservations. They didn't believe it was true. Despite that, what they saw changed them forever. Luke tells us, that the reason that he became a Jesus follower and Theophilus became a Jesus follower was because they saw him dead and then they talked to him. And even the guy that was the biggest skeptic of all of them touched the holes. And this was not, the Bible tells me so. This was not like my parents, I, I, I grew up in the Bible. It wasn't that, no, not at all. In fact, they didn't believe it was true. Like, show me, Jesus. And, and they put their fingers in the holes. And they said, I saw it. And I know it's true. And these disciples that were in hiding now all of a sudden see this. And they say, he's come back from, from the grave. And they come out of hiding. And they go into the streets of Jerusalem and they faced down the very people that had crucified Jesus, and they were arrested by those very same people, and they looked at them in the eye, the same people that had condemned Jesus to die in the first place. And then Luke documents these early sermons of these people 
who went on, these men and these women who went on to be, go through extraordinary persecution. They were put to death just like Jesus was. In fact, here's a, a, a sentence from the, a sermon that he records in the book of Acts. This was Luke as well. It says this in Acts 2.32, that God has raised this Jesus to life. And listen, and we are all witnesses of it. They're not trying to be attorneys. They're, not trying to, they're just saying, I saw it. I know it's true. I put my hands in him. They didn't read about it. They didn't hear about it. We saw him. We are witnesses. Here's the, here's the thing. Here's the thing that we need to know up front. Luke, Luke is saying, it's not just me. It's like we were all witnesses of this. Many people have taken up to do this. So I think, there's, I think there's a question that I want you to ask, and maybe you're one of those skeptics. You're like, I don't know if it's true. I think it's true. I'm not sure. I have reservations. I'm not, let me ask this question. Why so many? Why did so many people write about it? This would be so unusual for so many people to write about the same account. Why would Luke, why would, why would Peter through Mark, why would John write about this stuff? The answer is undeniable because something extraordinary happened. Something extraordinary happened, not because the Bible said so, that wasn't even around for several hundred years. It's because they witnessed it. So they sat down and they, they dictated it. And Peter sat down and he said, well, he was just a fisherman. He wasn't well educated, so he brought John Mark around, and John Mark would write down his words. And so, when you read the book of Mark, it sounds like a fisherman wrote it. It's short. It's action packed. It's written like like a like a like a blue collar working class. And then there's this account by by Matthew. He's writing to first century Jews, and he's saying, listen, trust me, trust me, I studied it too, and I'm telling you he's the Messiah. I'm telling you this is the one. Believe that it's him. And then he went on to say this, hey, look, all the law, all the prophets were pointing to him, and this is the one we were waiting on. Not because I was born with it, not because my parents believed it, not because I went to church camp once, but because I saw it, and I was a tax collector, and I was the one that everyone hated, and Jesus brought me under his wing, and he gave me dignity and respect, and then I saw him die, and then I saw him come to life again, not because the Bible said so, and then John, there's this guy, John, later in his life, we call it a gospel, but at the time, he wasn't thinking a gospel at all, he wasn't thinking it was going to be the Bible, he was just saying, look, I'm getting to the end of my life, and I encountered this guy who was my best friend, and I want you to know about him. At that time, other people had written it down, so why would he bother writing it down? This is, he tells us at the end of his account in John 20, 31, it says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. And he's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about his account, right? He's talking about the gospel of John. But he says this, but these are written, why? So that you might believe with certainty that it's trustworthy. Believe what, John? Believe what? Listen, at the end of the day, there are some people who are thinking about walking away from faith or maybe in the process of walking in faith or you're skeptical about faith and you just say, man, I don't know that I believe it anymore. I don't know that I believe it anymore. And the question is this, is what is the it? What is the it, because John says, look, this is the only it that matters. These were written that you might believe 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life. And there's, there's two words for life. There's bio-life or cells, and there's Zoe life, the full, overflowing, joy-filled existence. He's saying so that you would have an overflowing, joy-filled existence in your life. That's all that matters. And listen, regardless of what you've seen, regardless of what you heard, that's the only it that matters. And the implication of this is staggering because remember, he wasn't writing the Bible. He had no idea that was ever going to happen. He was just giving his account, which means this. When you think about everything else that might get in the way, when we think about what John just told us, the account of John it, it, it is this, that if John's account of the life of Jesus is all that we have, John's account is all that we need. He says, I've seen it, I've experienced it, it's true. I, put, I talked to him afterwards, I saw him walk around. I didn't think he was who he says he was. I was skeptical, I wasn't easily convinced. I had reservations, but I saw it. Now you need to believe, he says, and if that's all we have, that's all that we need. And listen, it's such, a, it's such the case that for some of us, our entry point into faith was never in the beginning. It wasn't Noah's Ark, it was when someone said, hey, Read the Gospel of John. It's all that you need. So Luke tells us, many have taken this up. I've carefully investigated. This is investigable. I kicked the tires, and I invite you to look at this as well. And this was written. This was written. This is what he says in verse 4 of Luke chapter 1. He says, this is written so that you might know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. In an age of skepticism, it's not enough to shrug your shoulders and say, I have a feeling inside. Investigate it. Know that it's true, he would say. You can have certainty. I've checked it out. I've talked to him, and it's not based off of a feeling. It's not based off of the Bible said so, because the Bible certainly didn't even exist at that place in that time. They, they so believed it that they were willing to embarrass themselves But how they wrote that they were unbelieving, skeptical, dense, dim-witted, disobedient, cussing at little girls at the campfire disciples. They, 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 were, they, were, they so believed it that they were willing to say, I'm going to die for this. So after this, after Jesus ascends and goes up to heaven, the disciples are sitting around and they start boldly proclaiming his name because they were skeptics, but they're not anymore. And it starts expanding and the church starts growing. It's, they don't even know they're called Christians yet. They're just called followers of the way. But they were so radical. This guy named Diocletian was the emperor at the time. And at that point in time, it was expected that anyone in the Roman Empire would bow their knee to the Roman gods because that's how we keep the gods happy. And whenever something bad would happen, they would, they, they would think the gods are mad at us. And so why are the gods mad at us? It's, they're mad because the, these Christians are growing in number and they're not bowing a knee to, to our gods. And so Diocletian said that, hey, anytime anything bad happens, we'll gather the Christians together. And there's a line even in, in, in some of these historical documents that would say, to the lions, to the lions they would go. And then this guy named Constantine the Great 
He entered the picture, and all of a sudden, he says, hey, Christians are no longer outlawed. They're no longer to be persecuted. And for the first time, these people were able to gather together in the open, and they were able to say, this is amazing. You have part of Peter's explanation, and, and you, have, you have John's explanation, and, 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 and you have Luke's explanation, and I can't believe this is amazing. And they would, they would gather them, and they would read them, and they'd say, we've heard about it, but now we see the eyewitness accounts. And now, only then, but hundreds of years later, did they gather them together, and it finally came together to say, hey, this, this is what actually happened. And it finally became the Bible, but listen, they didn't give their lives because of the Bible. They gave their lives because they saw Jesus and they knew him and they were skeptical, but then they believed him. And it wasn't just, you gotta have faith. It was because it was trustworthy. They can put their weight on it. And I wanna invite you, if you've been following Jesus for two years or two months or 20 years, I want to invite you to kick the tires with us in this series. Investigate it. Ask the hard questions, because the Christian faith can stand up under it. And I want you to ask this question, and maybe even consider this this week. It's a hard question, but I want you to consider this. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Ask it of yourself. It's not just I believe because. The challenge is this for me, is that you would go from I just trust it to it is trustworthy and I can put my weight into it. Let me pray with you. Let me pray with you and then we're all, all done here. God, thanks for your word. Thank you, God, that we were not given some mystical words of just believe it and feel good about it, but it was carefully investigated. It was written so that we might believe, and in believing, have that soul-saturating joy of life when we stop to consider the weight of the words, not just the accuracy and the trustworthiness of the words, but the weight of the words, and that because it's true, we can rest the weight of our soul on it. God, I, I want to pray for those in, in the sound of my voice. Uh, God, for those moments where we just feel like, I don't know if it's true. I mean, I, I thought it was true, and I grew up thinking it was true, but now I need to think a little bit more deeply about it. God, I pray that those honest questions would be met. God, that you would meet them in the space of their own heart and their own mind as they process this. Because if we're going to stand for Christ, we need to know that what we stand on is worthy, and it is. So God, go with us, we would ask, we would pray, and I pray your favor and prosperity and blessing on these folks that are here with us this weekend. God, we pray also for this next weekend coming up as people lean an ear into who this person of Christ is, that he would be magnified and glorified, that they would come to know and believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah that gives life and forgiveness and acceptance into your family and so much more. We wanna help make Jesus make sense to our community. God, use us in this egg hunt and all that's gonna happen here, God, to just bring glory to your name. Would your favor be upon these folks, we pray in Christ's name, amen.